Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Later on in the show we'll be talking to Luke Healy about the imminent release of his new book Permanent Press which will be launching at the Dublin Comics Arts Festival on the 21st of April. But first some information on another comics podcast you might enjoy. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Some Avery Hill news now. As well as it being the launch event for Permanent Press... We're also sponsoring the Dublin Comics Arts Festival on Saturday 21st of April. It'll be running from 11am to 5pm at the Generator Hostel in Smithfield Square in Dublin. Do come along to grab some books from us and meet some creators. Also hitting shops this month is Izmir by B. Muir. We spoke to B a couple of episodes back about the book and now if you pop into any of your local comic or bookshops they'll be able to order a copy for you. Pre-orders for the final issue of Metroland, which will be coming out next month, are opening on the 23rd of April. And the special offer in our webshop for April is free shipping on any issues of Metroland, including the discounted Issues 1 to 3 bundle. Use the code METROSHIP at checkout to get free shipping on any of those books. That's M-E-T-R-O-S-H-I-P. Some great news for Rachel Smith as well, who's been nominated as Best UK Writer in the Yancey Street Awards. In honour of our imminent trip to Dublin, our store spotlight this month is Big Bang Comics in Dundrum in Dublin. It's a fantastic array of books, comics, merchandise, a lovely little gallery spot as well. And they tend to spotlight the best in DC and Marvel stuff, new things from Image, and books from publishers like ourselves. Their full address is Units 2 and 3, Sandyford Road, Dundrum Town Centre, Dundrum, Dublin 16. They also have a Facebook page, and you can follow them on Twitter at the Big Bang with an underscore at the end. And now, let's have a chat with Luke Healy. Hi Luke, thanks for joining us. Uh, hi, yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to be launching your new book, Permanent Press, at the Dublin Comics Art Festival on the 21st of April. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited actually. Um, it's, I'm from Dublin, so it's always nice to get an excuse to go home, but then the, the festival is really fun. I've been once before, so yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I've never been to one before, but um, I know a few of the people involved in organising it and some of the exhibitors and names that are familiar from when I worked at Gosh and was, was buying in the small press. So, um, yeah, it looks like there's going to be some, some lovely stuff there, your own book included. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of um, really exciting cartoonists in, in Dublin. Um, so it's I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them all again. I think I'll just give out the details for the show for anyone who's interested in uh, coming along. So that's Saturday, 21st of April from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it's at the Generator Hostel in Smithfield Square in Dublin. So as you say, you were uh, born in Dublin. Uh, as, a, as a kid, were you reading a lot of comics? Um, I, I, I read some. I <laughs> sorry. This is I mean, I think we should just say it for listeners. This is the, this is the second time we've recorded this. Um, so I just if I if I sound like really weird about uh, saying stuff, it's just because I'm trying to sort of like remember what I said last time or you don't want to contradict um, yourself. That's it. Exactly. That's if we ever find the original recording and there's any sort of differences, I will go public. Yeah, it'll be very scandalous. I'm sure. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I read um, some comics. I never did the superhero thing, but I read a lot of uh, English comics like uh, Bino and Dundee. Um, and then I, I really um, got more into reading comics when I was like a, a older teenager. Um, when uh, web comics were a big thing, I got like real heavy into web comics for a few years, and that's that's sort of when I started reading uh, reading more stuff. And what about making comics? Was that something that happened as a as a kid, or you know, in a way that I guess all kids do? Or was it something you thought about more seriously as a as a teenager? Uh, I guess I started taking it seriously as a teenager. I I definitely drew a lot as a kid, um, and I did art classes in school and stuff like that. But I never thought about art or, or comics as, as a career option um, until I was in sort of late college. Um, I, I started making uh, uh, comics and putting them online myself when I was like maybe 17 or 18, sort of in my last couple of years of secondary school. But then uh, when I went to college, um, I sort of just started getting really serious about it. And I guess, you know, initially with, with, with comics, the big sort of issue for people was finding a way to monetize them i mean that's something that's a lot easier now with obviously patreon and other sort of funding programs but i think at that time the idea was that people used it almost as a showcase to pick up pro work or to hopefully try and parlay the collection strips into some sort of publishing deal oh sure i mean i you, you say that it's easier now i still haven't figured it out um <laughs> Yeah, if any if any of your listeners have any like hot tips on how to make some money online, um, please do send them my way, LukeWHealy at gmail.com. But yeah, I, I, I think in it's funny because I think there was like a um there was like a certain web comics economy or like path to monetization that existed at that time, which is around oh, you know, like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I guess. But people were still running like Project Wonderful ads. Everybody was like making like T-shirts and stuff. It was an odd, odd world. I feel like that that sort of thing doesn't exist in quite the same way. I guess like comics, independent comics, like Money Makers, really it's so trend based. Like it really shifts over the years. You know, like uh, I feel like for for a while it was like patches and pins. Maybe it's still that, um, and now. Now it's like, or, or prints were like a silkscreen and risograph prints were like money makers of shows for a while. But I've, I basically like never successfully made any money except through like working with publishers. So I'm absolutely the wrong person to speak on this topic. So you weren't looking to comics as a career path initially. And uh, at university, you ended up studying journalism. Yeah, that's true. I did um, a bachelor's degree in journalism, which was three years. I, I studied in Dublin and it was OK. I mostly really hated it and was pretty bad of it because I, I don't think I have like or at least then I didn't have the sort of like confidence or like outgoing disposition that like really you need to be a working journalist. And I was just like, I don't know, like shitting myself when I had to like phone call people. Um, but I it really didn't suit me. And, that, and at that time is when I started to get very serious about comics because I, I sort of was looking around like, oh, I'm like rubbish at this journalism thing. Like, what is it that I, I do like to do with my time? Like what, what could be a job that I should be pursuing? And, and comics was the thing at the time that I, I enjoyed the most and I felt like I, I could be good at. So, uh, after I finished, uh, studying journalism, I went to, um, graduate school to study cartooning and that was over in the states yeah i went to a school called the the center for cartoon studies which is in vermont in the northeast 
of the United States, and they um, they have like a, a Master of Fine Arts degree program, and I decided to do that, and it's two years. You are living in this tiny town in the middle of snowbound Vermont, and you just have to make comics the whole time. It, it was great. I loved that. Yeah, it's essentially a, a sort of comics incubator, isn't it? Like, you know, you're in this place where I'm sure there's not a lot of other distractions in terms of things to drag you away from the work. And then the course itself is quite intense, isn't it? It's pretty intense. It's broken up between the two years and, and each of them is quite different. So in the first year, you take a lot of classes and you have a lot of assignments. Like every week, basically, you have to make a new mini comic. And at the school, people sort of call it comics boot camp. Whereas in the second year, you're given a you're basically given the entire year to work on a thesis project, which is sort of of your own choosing. And it's it, it can be anything that you want it to be sort of as the idea is that it reflects your goals as a creator, maybe what kind of work you want to do after school. And so for, for that second year, I, I decided to do a graphic novel, which is the kind of comics that I, I like to make, like long and uh, self-contained. And having just spoken to other alumni of uh, CCS, one of the things that in- intrigued me was the idea of you, you sort of assigned projects where you work in the style of other cartoonists to sort of get an understanding of, of their mechanics and how their stories work. That's true. Um, especially at the beginning of the first year, they really want to challenge you, challenge the kind of comics that you like to make, I suppose. I think a lot of uh, people come into the course and they have this idea of their, you know, quote unquote style or, or their sort of path in comics. And I think something that that first year is really good at is shaking you out of your comfort zone, forcing you to do really different things. And then when you have the chance in your second year to work on your own stuff again, you're really you've just been taken out of your comfort zone and you can sort of refocus on what it is that you actually like and value as a comics creator and what you just were sort of holding on to as like a safety blanket, I guess. Yeah, I like the idea of sort of unlearning as a stage in learning where it's sort of the, everything you know is not necessarily wrong, but not necessarily the entire answer as well. Yeah, exactly. In the first year, you have to do a bunch of stuff that's it's in different styles. So you have to like make you know replicate silver age comics and then you know comic strip in i in my first year i had to do a bunch of like nancy comic strips uh, everybody was given a different cartoonist to work in their mold and it's it's fun it's really interesting it definitely is yeah they're breaking you down to sort of rebuild you in in their image i guess the faculty in terms of the permanent faculty and the guest lectures you get in is a, a real sort of who's who of contemporary comics isn't it yeah, it's amazing. Um, and, and they're all really good teachers, too, which I think like not every good cartoonist would make a good teacher. Um, but like, yeah, the faculty includes like, well, James Sturm co-founded the school with Michelle Ali and Jason Lutz is a regular faculty, John Chudurgin, Steve Bissett, Sophie Yano and uh, Sarah Stewart-Taylor. I think there's there's probably more since since my time. Uh, Luke Howard, actually, who was... Um, we lived in the same house and he was a student a year ahead of me. I believe he is part of their permanent faculty now. He's such a good cartoonist too. And in terms of uh, guest lecturers, uh, any particular highlights there for you? Yeah, there were, there were a lot. I feel like I, I feel lucky in the two years that I was there, a lot of really 
cool cartoonist whose work I admire came through. We had Chris Ware one week. We had Alison Bechtel, Jean Yang. I'm trying to think of more. We had we had a lot of you. They're they're sort of like the big graphic novelty people, but you get people from from lots of different worlds. You know, Kazuki Buishi came through when I was there. Who um, does the Amulet series? So that's like more more of like a kids graphic novels. Uh, Yuko Oda and Ananth. Um, but they they're like more the webcomic side of things, and and it, they really give you a lot of different perspectives. Not everyone is like an incredible success as a visiting artist, which goes to my sort of like not every cartoonist is a good communicator and public speaker outside of comics. Um, but you really you really get to meet a lot of people. It's cool. And as you say, the range as well. It'd be very easy just to go for the sort of obvious prestige people that have won the big awards and have a, a sort of a, a larger public name, but you know, just in terms of commerciality, the explosion in YA comics over the last sort of five, ten years means that, you know, hearing from those creators is going to give you, you know, an insight that isn't necessarily going to be valuable to you in your work, but could definitely resonate with someone in the room. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's really funny. I think like when people who are maybe in the side of indie comics that we are think of, you know, successful comics creators, certain names definitely do leap to mind but while those people are getting a certain amount of like prestige in the indie comic circuit you know like Raina Tegemeyer is still on the New York Times bestseller list 10 years after her book came out just completely destroying all sales charts you know and 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 there's the comics industry is so divided that it can be hard to like see outside of your bubble sometimes. So I think the the guests often were like glimpses into these other worlds of comics making. And the work that you ended up doing for the course, you also managed to sort of transfer into work that you produced yourself uh, and also work that you got published through Nobrow. Yeah, that's true. For my thesis in the second year, I uh, like I said, I made a graphic novel and that sort of became my first book, How to Survive in the North, which was published then a couple of years after I graduated uh, by Nobrow. Um, and that that was a project that I, I started working on in school. And just when I finished school, decided to send it off as a pitch, basically, and, and Nobrow decided to pick it up. So that, that was really very exciting. It's a really interesting premise for the book as well. Would you like to just uh, outline it for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so it is essentially it's it tells three stories two of which are um inspired by true events they're uh retellings of these two arctic expeditions that went wrong on the same island uh in the 19 teens and the 1920s respectively um and the third story is like a fictional sort of framing narrative about a professor who uh falls into researching about those two expeditions and uh they're, they're, I, I, I don't call them nonfiction. They're, I consider it to be sort of like fiction based on true events, but I, I extensively research them and, and spend a lot of hours in the library reading old diaries and poring over photos and stuff. Um, it was a, it was a really cool project to work on. I had a, I had a good time. It was very stressful, but very cool. Yeah, I guess once you're juggling sort of multiple narratives and timelines and, you know, interconnecting the, the, the three sort of, uh, storylines is uh, you know quite a complex piece yeah it was and you know it's funny i remember when i first sort of pitched that as what i would do for my thesis um i was taking a summer workshop at, at the center for cartoon studies at the time led by paul karasik 
um, who just recently published How to Read Nancy, which is a very weird but cool book. Um, and I think the first thing he said to me when I finished reading off my description, he was like, like he was like, are you trying to show off? Um, and I was like, yeah, I guess so. I pretty much. I mean, it was a thesis. You know, you got to go big or go home. But he, he had a good point, I think. Like when I look back at that book, I'm very proud of that book and I like it a lot. Um, but it is like it is showing off a bit. <laughs> I feel like this it's a it's a bit more complicated than it needs to be. But um I'm 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 happy I made those choices. You know, I always I always like to be sort of more ambitious than is necessary anyway. I'd rather be ambitious and have a big failure than not that I think that book's a big failure, but I, I'd rather I'd rather that than be safe and sort of make something that's safe. Yeah, I, I don't think you know, you can never really criticise ambition in art. You can certainly criticise the results sometimes, but, um, you know, I think we're, we're all uh, richer for people taking chances and doing something a bit bigger than, than they necessarily need to. Sure. And I think that a big thing about comics is, and I guess a lot of creative media, is that they're, they're very time-consuming to make. So if you are not enjoying working on it, it's just, you're just wasting your time, in my opinion, because you're going to spend a thousand times longer making that book than anybody is reading it. So you might as well like make it fun for yourself. And for me, making stuff fun for me is like making it really challenging to work on, you know, so it's sort of is like exercising your comics making muscles as much as possible. Um, and so that's the, I always try to do that in every project, basically just make it like <laughs> sort of too complicated and more of a headache than it should be. Another piece that you worked on at uh, CCS was of the Monstrous Pictures of Wales, which uh, you sort of self-published in 2014. Yeah, that was a, a comic I made uh, as the end of first year project. And it's sort of a story about a family that goes on this whale spotting cruise. Um, and I, I, I made it uh, after at the end of the first year. And I really I'm still really proud of that comic, actually. I like it a lot. I think it's very funny. But I, I decided to self-publish it as a mini comic, and uh, and it went over well. People liked that one. I think that was the first comic I made. That uh, here's I feel like I can already hear myself repeating something I said when we recorded this before. But that that really is the first comic I made where I felt like I clicked into my thing, where I realized like oh this is the comic kind of comic that I want to make at least at that time. And uh, I feel like my work is still pretty much in that lane today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things about it is I think it's a really strong character piece. Like, you know, uh, you have the family element, uh, but you have, uh, you know, in, you know, brilliant dialogue between the family members. Very, very familiar to, I mean, obviously, uh, the family that, that are in there are Irish. And there's a certain cadence to how they speak, which I, I personally enjoy as someone living in Ireland. You, you can, you know, it's that sort of talk between siblings and um, parents and the overshadowing elements of all family life would be recognizable to any reader, I think. Yeah, I feel like that was the first comic where I really put a lot of myself into it and sort of a, a lot of the, you know, the events of that comics are all, of that comic are all fictitious, but the way that the, the characters talk to each other is so directly based on my own family. And I think that that's, that's the major theme that's like, or the major sort of perspective shift for me as a creator is is in trying to make my work more personal as I go along, even if it's not, you know, like a memoir or anything where it's it's really examining myself, my own life, and then seeing how I can take those things and sort of mix them together in a way that communicates 
um, the idea that I'm trying to get across. And the, the effort wasn't without reward because it won the MockaFest Award of Excellence in 2014 as well. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> it did. Oh, yeah, that was that was really cool. That was um, that was the first sort of um, critical recognition, I guess, that any of my work ever got. And it was a really nice feeling. And it was it was cool as well, because one of the prizes was the pages for that were hung up in, in the Museum of Comics, Cartoon Art in New York. And uh, my parents were visiting around that time. So I got to, like, bring them in and be like, yeah, check it out in a museum. Uh, felt very legit. And also, uh, I read that uh, all the all the uh, things chosen for the Award of Excellence are then acquired by Columbia University to go in their rare book and manuscript library for a specific Mocha Arts Festival collection. A comic that I, I did later, actually, which is in, included in Permanent Press, the Cuckoo's Nest section of, of Permanent Press, is in the Library of Congress, I think, in the United States. That's forever, isn't it? That's, uh, you know... A, a wonderful thing to have. I mean, you know, it'll be available until Western society collapses, and I'm all right with that. Yeah, I've just remembered who's president. Give it a week. Yeah. Give it a week. I think it's a good time to, to let people know that of the monstrous pictures of Wales and lots of your other uh, material is available on your website. You're very generous with the uh, the material that you've put up there. I'm very generous. Uh, I'm more very lazy, I guess. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I, I basically everything I've done except for um, m my published works, my my works by by like larger publishers are available on my website. So there's like at least ten comics up there, I think. Um, and I just basically don't want to deal with <sighs> the post office, like posting people's zines. But you know, if if you ever catch me at a, a comics festival, like decaf uh 21st of april in dublin um i i'll sell you stuff there i make really nice mini comics i make them real pretty but i don't want to deal with posting them anywhere so you can just read them for free online yeah it's a tough thing for people who are self-published isn't it that sort of balance between making the work and then actually actually getting the work into people's hands doing a show you know in itself is time consuming but i've spoken to people who have almost become victims of their own success where they just have to spend the day packing things up and doing post office trips, which, you know, lovely that people have an interest and you're getting the orders in. But it is, you know, it's a, it's a separate job entirely, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's 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 one, you know, you can be a cartoonist in many ways. You can be a, a, you can make your money as a cartoonist in many ways. And for me, I'd rather just like lose that income stream, I guess, and not have to take up the time and, and spend my time doing other stuff for money. Um, and just give people the comics for free so they can enjoy them, even if they don't want to pay, you know, seven pounds to ship it internationally. Well, another sort of complimentary uh, income you have is, is working as a comics colorist and, and color flatter. Um, how did you get into that job? The first comics flatting job I did was maybe three or four years ago. I just... Um, saw a posting on Twitter by Lucy Nisley, who's uh, an alum of the Center for Cartoon Studies, that she was looking for a color flutter for a new book. And I, I had I had done a lot of digital comics work before. Like, I worked as a scanning assistant. And yeah, I guess like not to ring my own bell or whatever, but I, I, I'm a very competent Photoshop user. I've been using it since I was like 10 years old. Um, and so I, I just emailed her and said, hey, look, I have experience uh, coloring my own work and doing a little coloring for other people, doing digital stuff. 
we went to the same school care, care to hire me. Uh, and she did, thank goodness. And, uh, that was a really great experience. And then I just did, um, I just kept doing it from there. Basically like the way that I have found is that work just leads to work. You know, the, the second book that I ended up doing was because Lucy then recommended me to somebody else. And then, you know, I, I, I did my first work as like a full colorist for, uh, John Chad, who's one of, who was one of my teachers at the Center for Cartoon Studies and then is a friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, it hasn't really stopped since, which, hey, I'll, I'll keep doing it because I, I like it. I enjoy the process. It's very zen and, um, it, it pays money, which is always nice in the comics industry when you find something that does that. Particularly if it is something that is sort of creative as well, rather than, uh, you know, posting off someone else's comics, for example, wouldn't be as rewarding. Yeah, coloring is definitely creative. Color flatting a little bit less so. I do sort of fear the Photoshop CS whatever that completely automates the process. I think for for people listening, it might be useful just to contrast between uh, being a colorist and being a color flatter. I think people generally have an idea of what a colorist does in the sense of providing colors for a comic. But uh, color flatting is something that is only really talked about within the industry, I think. Sure. Yeah. Color flooding basically means preparing a page for a colorist. Um, so what you w- want to do is basically fill in all the different spaces on the page and make sure that, you know, a character's hair is the same color in every panel. So that when the colorist comes to put final colors down, they can just click once with their paint bucket tool and it'll make sure their hair is the same all across the page. Um, so most of uh, what a color flatter does is zooms in really close to an image's closes off little gaps in the art and then fills everything with like super ugly garish colors. And it just basically shaves an hour or two off a colorist's time when they eventually get to work on the page. Another creative outlet you have is comedy. Uh, I think specifically improvised comedy. Yeah, that's true. I've been doing improv for about a year and um, I'm, I'm, I just started last week, actually my first, uh, regular show, so which is uh, every Friday night. If anybody lives in London, it's in Camden at the FA's Comedy Room above the Lord Stanley Pub. And yeah, it's five pounds every Friday. It's really fun. I, I, I love improv. Um, I've been a big fan of it for many years, but uh, only just recently sort of found the guts to start doing it myself. I recommend it to everyone. I think everyone can benefit from from having a little fun on stage. And I'm imagining as well, just in terms of your general creativity, having another outlet will sort of help to stimulate ideas and and also just confidence across lots of different disciplines. I think so. Well, I think what's what I like most about improv is that, you know, in my comics work, I I tend to be very meticulous. Like I'll do many drafts and edit stuff. And I, I like my work to be sort of intricate, I guess. Writing wise, if, if, you know, not, not really visually, I, I tend to keep things, I, I, I go for sort of like a maximalist, minimalist approach where the writing is like very maximalist and has just like tons of ideas and, and tons of words usually. Um, but then the images are, are sort of minimal and, and very cartoony, but improv lets me sort of like flex the other side of being a creative, inventive person, I suppose, which is just going off the top of your head and not having time to think about it and rework it. Um, because thinking about stuff too much in improv just kills it. So you gotta just gotta be quick and fast, and and if it goes wrong, it goes wrong, and you don't need to worry about it very much. As you said earlier as well, you know the, the very action of making comics is very time consuming, isn't it? Where with improv improv comedy, 
you can run through, you know, a dozen ideas, you know, in 10 minutes quite easily. Yeah, I mean, you basically have to. Um, improv is, is such a funny thing because, you know, I, I'm, I'm on a couple of teams and we do sort of practices, but they're not they're not the same thing as rehearsals because you can't you, nothing's pre-prepared. So basically what you do is you just meet up with a coach and you do shows and then they give you notes and they're like, all right, well, maybe next time, you know, you maybe don't don't be so negative in the show because people like when everybody's positive on stage stuff like that so there are sort of rules but basically yeah if you want to do an hour-long improv show other than practicing to become better at it it only takes an hour to do you know i think also what you're saying there about being able to work through a lot of different ideas is sort of reflected in in, in permanent press where you know it would have been quite easy to do a conventional anthology where you've got two stories that you want to put together and maybe just do a third and just do three separate stories to provide uh, an outline of your work. But instead you've uh, really sort of packed it with ideas within the stories and within the, the interlinking of the stories as well. So permanent press came about in sort of a, a funny order. Like the, the, there's a section of permanent press that is just basically a reprinting of a, a short story that I did before uh, a year ago called the unofficial cuckoo's nest study companion. And I wrote that comic when I was working on how to survive in the North, when I was drawing how to survive in the North. And it was basically an accumulation of every sort of idea or formal trick that I could think of. Uh, and my goal was just like, use them all up. Like see if there's a way you can make it work when you just stuff everything in. And I, I think it does. I think that's, that's like the comic I'm, I'm proudest of, of anything I've, I've ever made. Um, and so when it came to expanding that story into a, a larger book, you know, I, I just wanted to like keep shoving more stuff in to see how much I could like make fit basically. Um, and I, I, I think that that's sort of like cacophony of ideas. It's like one, I think it is fun because it, it, it gives you a lot to chew through as you read through the book and it's thematically appropriate to what the book is trying to talk about. But also I think in, uh, in person and in my work often, I think I give the impression that I like take myself very seriously and there's something sort of fun about pushing that like maximalist thing in my work to almost the point of parody where it starts to become like kind of silly. Um, and then permanent press is, is a comedy. Um, and so I, I like that the sort of like silliness is baked into the whole idea of the book rather than just being an accumulation of sort of funny lines and quips laid on top of a, a standard story, I guess. Yeah. I think the, the, the sort of the tortured artist is so, sort of ripe for, for satire, isn't it? You know, it can shift into melodrama so quickly, can't it? Oh, for sure. And and even, you know, like self self effacing humor or or self parody can often come off like seeming either like very egotistical or just like false or or I guess like even beyond that, it can it can just really seem like the person really takes himself very seriously and, and it's sort of this like, oh, but like, don't, don't worry. I don't take myself seriously. Like, huh? like tap dancing too fast, you know? And so this book, I think that, <laughs> cause the, the, I mean, the like tortured artist, like that's, that's such a dumb, it's like a well-mined source of comedy. But I think that this book, it just, it really like blows it out to such a big degree 
that I, I, I don't know. I think it's really funny. It's an idea that grows and grows and grows. And it, yeah, as you say, you, I think you used to, to brilliant effect as a sort of framing linking sequence um, for, for the other two pieces. Um, and just to, to talk on, on one of those pieces and to refer back to that you mentioned earlier, the unofficial Cuckoo's Nest Study Companion as a mini comic and, and a web comic managed to gather an Ignatz Award nomination for outstanding mini comic and uh, got into the shortlist for the Slate Cartoonist Studio Prize as a webcomic. So uh, it's a piece that sort of comes into permanent press with a lot of momentum behind it already. Yeah, people responded really well to that one, which, I mean, like I said, it's it's basically my favorite thing I've ever made. Um, So I I was really happy when people got it, I guess, Uh, because it is it's it's a it's kind of a big ask like that that book by itself which when you print it out, just that section is about 60 pages in length. I think there's there's so much in there that it's kind of like a, a graphic novel into itself. Just has tons of panels, tons of words, tons of ideas. And and when I put that out, I was really worried that people would open it, look at it and be like, oh, my God, like it's too dense. Like there's too many words, like it's too pretentious. Like I don't want to spend my time on this. But that 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 didn't end up being the response. And, and I was so relieved when people liked that book. <laughs> well, it is, it, it's, you know, there's mixed media, there's meta narrative, there's, you know, uh, footnotes. So it is, you know, when I say it's an overwhelming piece, I mean that in the best possible way. It's like a real sort of barrage of ideas, but so delicately composed that it absolutely works a treat. Oh, thank you. Well, that's, that's sort of the idea. You know, like I said, I, I like this like maximalist writing approach where I just, I just feed everything in. I find that I'm, I'm a person that gets like bored quite easily. Um, and so to me, there's something just like inherently exciting about work that is like, just has a lot packed into it, I guess, especially with comics, you know, comics, um, comics, they can, I, I feel like a big trend in comics, at least a few years ago was this like super airy, um, like very undense, like uh, like vague, sort of like steeped in metaphor, like sparse imagery. Uh, like I feel like that was a real popular sort of like approach to mini comics. And and while I, I like a lot of comics like that, I think that's fine. I think like that's not the only way you can make a successful comic. So part of me making Cuckoo's Nest was kind of kind of me being like a little snot-nosed asshole just being like fuck you guys like you can make a comic with lots of words too i also like the sort of the the creative impulse to sort of to sort of burn through ideas and techniques almost to sort of you know uh give yourself a challenge for the next thing you're gonna do because essentially you wouldn't really want to go and revisit any of those for for fear of being seen to be retreading the same path Oh, sure. And, you know, I, I I think that everybody who is a creative person just has or I guess everybody has so many ideas for stuff that they want to make that you, you'll never have time to do it all. So, so, you know, saving stuff in the chamber. I mean, I guess if you really want to bide your time, that's fine. That's It's your choice. But but I'd rather just like throw it all out there and sort of have the the confidence to or the self self-belief that, you know, when time comes and all of those ideas are spent that more ideas will appear to take their place i guess the other strip in permanent press was the one that dave from avery hill contacted you about originally i believe yeah yeah it's uh it's called the big and small and it tells the story of two men who live 
uh, one lives above the other one in, in an apartment building, and it sort of just compares their lives um, based on the all of the numbers in their lives. Like uh, Cuckoo's Nest is a, is a very verbal comic, and it's all about words and how we use words to communicate. And so for the big and small, I really just thought it would be sort of funny to make like a counterpoint comic that was all about numbers. And so you sort of like learn about these two men and, and you know, how their lives are different because their shower heads are like at a different angle in the morning. Yeah, loads of wonderful little touches like that. Again, I can see what you're saying about it being a, a counterpoint to uh the unofficial cuckoo's no study companion but within the context of the piece and with the framing and linking sequence uh yeah it's a a, a brilliant body of work in one book i think oh thank you very much yeah i well I, I always knew that i wanted uh big and small to be related to cuckoo's nest because i i sort of had it in the back of my mind that i i wanted to put them together in a collection but i i really wasn't sure how so i just sort of thought well i'll make it the same size so that if i ever need to print them together they'll be the same size and i'll just start making this comic sort of page by page like cuckoo's nest was all rewritten and written in drafts but for big and small i said i just want to be making something like i'll make it page by page i have these ideas i'll see sort of where it goes and i started posting them on twitter and and dave contacted me and said hey you know we might be interested in publishing this and i sort of i don't know i guess i was a bit cheeky like i kind of sort of chanced my arm and was like hey well what if like i put them together in a graphic novel and added a whole bunch of new stuff and then saw what happened and i sort of pitched in the idea for permanent press and and you know thankfully you went for it i like the idea that you think you're being cheeky by saying would you also like to publish my ignatz awards nominated <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll put you in dave's like oh okay then yeah i suppose <laughs> Well, that's so funny because that book I, I sent Cuckoo's Nest around when I finished it before I ever self-published it or before it you know got nominated for the awards, um, and the the sort of responses that I got were like yeah we like it but it's a bit short, and so when I I was thinking because I thought oh like should I expand it like should I just add a bunch of pages in sort of like puff it out but I felt like it was so tight like I didn't want to mess with it, and so when it came to you know, thinking of how I, I could expand it. I was like, well, maybe I'll do a short story collection. I'll make this big and small comic. I'll put them together. But then when Dave contacted me, I was like, oh, fuck it. Like, I'll go for broke. Like, I'm going to pitch him the weirdest, like, weirdest project. It's such a, like, I love Permanent Press. I'm so proud of it. It's an odd book. And I kind of couldn't believe it when he came back to me. I was like, yeah, we'd be interested in publishing that because it's weird. Like, it's a really weird book. It uh, is exactly the sort of thing that a real publishing exists for. Something that I read and loved. And I know, you know, we've, we've got a lot of love for it. And we're looking forward to getting it out there. I can't wait till people read this. I'm so curious as to how people are going to respond. Like, <laughs> I really have no idea. I, I love it. And it's certainly like it's gotten a couple of reviews that have been very positive and people see well, it'll be hitting the streets of Dublin on Saturday, the 21st of April and available in all good bookshops shortly after that. So do let your local comic shop or bookshop know uh, if you'd like a copy and they'll be able to track one down for you for us. Luke, thank you so much for joining me once more. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'll see you in Dublin. Yeah, see you soon. Thanks again to Luke for joining us and thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a whole fast network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.